0: And welcome back to the Cover 3 podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Danny Connell. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, So excited to dive back into the big old bag of mail because it is something that creates the conversation, powers us through the offseason, allows us to take a step back, and and these midweek shows are the perfect time to do it we put away our takeaways from the weekend. Our locks will come on Thursday. That's right, youtube.com slash Cover 3 if you want to jump in. We are moving lines, fellas. The listeners need to watch us live, and they need to be able to like and subscribe. If you subscribe to the Cover 3 podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash Cover 3, And you smash that bell for the notifications, then you will get an alert the moment that we go live. You'll never miss it. It's great for Thursdays, great for Mondays, even though it's eleven a.m. Thursdays, three p.m. Mondays. But also very important for Saturday night, so that you can uh, jump in on this Uh, real quick. Like Tom, I I see your uh, if you're watching on YouTube.com/slash Cover Three right now, your uh, your your nameplate says fan of bad teams. (laughs) <laughs> how are we doing okay right now
1: i mean yeah we're fine but I, I, am a, I am a fan of bad teams that's really all it comes down to every team i love sucks and that's just the story <laughs> of my life
0: it's not the story of your entire life but I, hey name
1: name one team i ever liked that was good go ahead try. Bulls
0: me. are back Psh, never happened <laughs> <laughs> uh bud I'm so again like to to not trying to to dive in a little bit heavier here but any final word for your uh, beloved Rays as you uh, head on into the off season?
3: Yeah, I mean that that's the I just threw the ball over the fence. That's the dumbest call ever. Okay. You know, <laughs> I mean
0: all uh, right, minder, if you would like to jump in on a future mailbag episode, the way that you do it is you leave a 5-star review and in that review you put your question. We'll add it to the big old bag of mail, and uh, and we will be pulling a couple. I'll throw this. Next Wednesday, we'll be discussing some of our midseason All-America teams. We do have some business uh, to take care of, but I will make it my goal to have at least one mailbag question every Wednesday show for the rest of the season, so at least one. This one's a full mailbag episode, but so keep populating that mailbag so that we can continue to hit your questions uh, along the way. We begin...
1: Actually, can I ask the first mailbag question? Yeah. Did anybody realize there was a game last night before the game started?
0: I did. I actually was talking about, uh, and my pregame take was, if App State plays its game... Louisiana can't reach that level. However, going on the road in conference play against quality opponents is really tough. And if App State comes out flat, it's going to get got. And... Uh
4: They got got. They got got. got.
0: got got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. App State started horribly. It started very, very poorly. Found themselves in a hole. Couldn't climb out of it. Louisiana cruised to a win. Big time missed opportunity. App State was calling it the reckoning tour. They were saying they're going to take every Sunbelt team that beat them last year and get them back this year. And yeah, I was dialed into my beloved Mountaineers. That's a very disappointing performance that I'm sure the App State listeners who subscribe to the podcast are are trying to nurse uh, here on this Wednesday morning as we record.
1: See, I thought that game was tonight. And I was just sitting there all sad after the White Sox lost, crying. And I looked up and I was like, oh, wait, that's... That's this is last night. Like that's tonight. That's in a couple hours. Oh crap! So my Twitter tip of the day doesn't count because I put absolutely no research into it.
0: You just said better team, short number. I mean, yeah.
1: I I looked at Louisiana's defensive numbers. I was like, yeah, okay, but I didn't think of you're trusting Chase Bryce as a favorite on the road. So you know, it, okay, it was my fault. I I wanted to bet App State there
3: as well and just pass because it didn't come into range for me to hit it. But I had the over fifty four at open and they missed an extra point. So I got, (laughs) I got to push, but a lot of people got a loss.
1: Why do all kickers suck? That should be the first question of the mailbag. When did kickers get so bad in this sport?
0: (laughs) We are going to focus on kickers a little bit later, but we're going to start with the basic position. Let's start with the quarterback position. Uh, Five star says it's the, ah, yikes. The Alabama of college football podcasts. This is a dated review that came in before (laughs) Alabama's uh, primetime loss to Texas A&M. Chip, Tom, Danny, and Bud always deliver from locks, Mm pods, to mailbags, to recaps. Always a fun listen. Question. Quarterback play in 2021 has clearly been below levels of the past few seasons. Curious outside of the 2019-2020 classes having more talent, which just glancing at the recruiting ranks is true, What do you think is the most important reason that we have seen a drop in play? A few reasons I will throw out there for the debate. Number one, transfer portal issues. Quarterbacks are spending less time in systems. Thus we see a drop in play constantly transfers result in less works for coaches and a drop in play. Number two, COVID development issues, less time on the field doing work last season. Number three, defenses are catching up to the offensive concepts. And then number four, offensive line play continues to decline which limits uh the run game and the pass game concepts which has simplified the offensive game plans or is this all wrong and is the talent issue in 2021 just a blip
1: i will not rule out any of his options as possibilities but my instinct is that number three is far and away the more important one. Besides the talent issue, like I said, we've gone over many times. It's just not as talented a class as there is. But, I mean, we see this in the sport all the time. Some An offense does something. It's ahead of the defense. The defense finally catches up. And then an offense changes to find the next thing to beat the defense. I think we are seeing defenses kind of catch up to what offenses have been able to do to them both from a scheme standpoint and putting the plays together and from what rule changes have allowed and defenses have finally started figuring out ways to counter these changes to not stop them, but at least slow them down a little bit. And I think that and the talent are what having a bigger impact than anything.
3: Yeah. So we, we did a little video on this, um, in the preseason. I, I had Bill Connolly on and talked about, uh, you know, the different, uh, defenses out there now that are kind of just admitting they don't have the guys to man up uh, and they're just dropping eight consistently, right? And I think that is limiting explosiveness and we're having to see some of these young quarterbacks uh, be more patient than they normally want to be, uh, especially some of these guys that are more of the, you know, the one read RPO variety. I think that is uh, taking some of that away or making the read the, the handoff. And uh, when they get impatient, they, they pull it uh, probably inappropriately or you know like not the correct decision. Uh, and then they they chuck it into coverage. And I think we're seeing that with some programs out there that are normally uh, pretty explosive on first down, and uh, some of their stuff is just not hitting at quite the rate. Oklahoma is a really good example of that, by the way. Like, they're not nearly as explosive on first down as they normally are, Um, and teams are just saying, fine, hand it off, cool.
1: We're we're just not going to give up the bigs, and we'll we'll play red zone roulette. Uh, So. Yeah, we saw some of that. It's not just college, like you talked about the RPO stuff. We saw some of that in the Monday night game with Lamar Jackson. There was an RPO in inside the 10, and it was clear if he hands it off, the guy's going to get to the corner and score without any kind of you know trouble. But Lamar was kind of frustrated with being bottled in by the Colts defense all night, and he held on to the ball and got instead got tackled for like a loss of five yards. So it's it's on all levels right now.
4: I think it's all of you guys have hit on it. Uh, you know, the emergence of, you know, the, the rush three drop eight or, you know, three, three, five has become very popular, which only a few teams were running. There's more teams implementing that scheme. And basically all of it's designed to try to counter what offenses are doing. You know, we hear that term chess, chess match, like in games, there's a chess match that goes on. I think there's also... The longer slow playing chess game where you know you you make a move, you walk away, you come back to your computer and you mean a month to make another move. like that to me is what we're seeing unfold now between defenses catching up to the offenses because the defense, you know, they see a couple tough moves and they're like, all right, they kind of just they buy some time, try not to you know just survive this onslaught of offensive football that we've seen. And now we're seeing, some of the slow-moving pieces, entire off-seasons, getting more film on tape, seeing one or two teams have some success, and then you pull some of those philosophies and you implement them in your scheme. So I think that's a big part of it. I also think the question had some outstanding points because we've seen offensive line play struggle. Uh, I do think missing for some teams, especially out west, when you look at the Pac-12, what a shell of a season they had with the Big Ten, you know, Ohio State only played six games or some Big Ten teams that didn't play very many games and an entire spring, I absolutely think that hurts too. And then you look at the way teams were operating during COVID with the restrictions, where they were trying to teach like this on a Zoom, uh, you know, trying to go to the chalkboard. And there's, there's a human interaction that's lost there in translation with trying to teach things via a screen and not – On a walk in a walkthrough, even because there's still value in actually seeing those pieces move around on a field. And then the greatest teacher of all of them is something you lost valuable thing, and that's reps, you know, getting either in you know, three screen spring scrimmages, game time, all of those are incredibly valuable for young players who haven't played very much. And then I'll say this the last thing, and this probably goes to the talent aspect of it. I mean, a lot of these guys were overhyped because that's what we do. You know, that's what that's what ESPN does, and that's what magazines do, and websites and everything. We want to sell the stars of the game. So when you hear a guy like DJ Oyungale or Spencer Rattler, Spencer Rattler's an interesting one because we saw a whole year of him playing really good, and then to see that regression is kind of like, okay, what happened there? But for DJ and for some of the other guys that maybe weren't as big of hits, it's it's we probably overhype them like there's, we see it happen all the time. So we just need to slow down a little bit. And it doesn't mean that any of them can't be great again. I think that we are probably,
0: I think it's going to take multiple seasons and multiple recruiting cycles for us to hit another point where we feel like we are overwhelmed with quarterback talent at the college game. We're like, wow. Like the look at these four, or five awesome quarterbacks that are all thriving at the same time in different parts of the country, in different conferences. And I think that some of it is a little bit of the pass the chalk uh, chess match, but uh, a lot of it might just be that the, the game is shifting. Like you, you go back in your head and you start to realize that most college football seasons – don't have the kind of overwhelming uh talent at the very very top. And to me, if I can name five players or five or six quarterbacks that are without a doubt just way ahead of everyone else, that is a beefy class of top-tier quarterbacks. For the most part, it's only like the one or two that we're debating because the Heisman, you know, has become a little bit of a a quarterback award. What Yeah, Tom has mentioned, you know, if you want to look at the Heisman Trophy this year, maybe the fact that there aren't a whole bunch of quarterbacks right there at the top as a reason to start to look at another position. But I don't think this is going to be something that gets changed immediately. I feel like this is going
4: to take a couple years before we start to see what we saw in the last couple seasons in the college game. This is a massive opportunity for running backs. I mean, think about it by numbers alone. You know, if you think about a three drop eight or a three, three, five for the simplest, simplistic terms, you only have three defensive linemen in there. If you're doing a 3-3-5, then you have three backers who are probably fast. Then you've got five secondary-type players. If just in the simplest sense of football, what should you do from a number standpoint? You should start running the football a whole lot more. Push those teams around. And what did we see in the, the Red River uh, Red River rivalry? We saw Kennedy Brooks. Yeah, I know both quarterbacks went off, and Casey Thompson had five touchdowns, and Caleb Williams was the story of the game. Kennedy Brooks was the story of that game, rushing for over 200 yards. How about Travion Henderson? What he's doing for Ohio State, especially since they kind of reevaluated after the Oregon loss. All of a sudden, Travion Henderson's getting a lot more catches. And last point I'll make on the rush three, drop eight, what Bud was talking about. Like, and this is the long chess game that's always a back and forth. I'll never forget we were number one in the country Thursday night football playing against uh, Virginia, and we lost the game. I don't know if Bud – I'll give Bud a trivia game. Do you know how many times we threw the football in that game? 13. 45. 67 okay. pass attempts in that game. 67. This is in 1995. This isn't like recently. And I'll never forget Mark Rick after that game. And Al Groh was the defensive coordinator for Virginia. He was going to rush three and drop eight. And so we were thinking and dunking and throwing. we take some shots. I threw three picks in that game. Um – But after the game, Mark Rick was like, we should have ran the ball more. You know, we should have established a line of scrimmage, but we were so ingrained. We were so used to just moving the ball. We had like, we were running up tempo. We'd score in a minute and a half, and it was kind of a thing. We were in so much uh, success offensively. And that was the counter in the chess game, which we didn't see a whole lot of. And Mark Rick didn't either. And if we would have run more, done, established, we would have given our defense a little bit more of a rest. We would have had a lot of success. We would have kind of controlled the tempo a little bit better it would have probably changed the outcome of the game. I'll never forget Mark Rick saying, "Man, we, we should have ran the football more in that game." And I think that's what you're starting to see for that chess match. So now that teams are going to this 3-3-5 and Russ 3 drop 8, you should see more running backs like a Kenneth Walker the third. you know, you're going to see some of these running backs start to come to the forefront, which is great.
1: This shoulder still sore. <laughs> <You're-
4: laughs> <laughs> Whose shoulder?
1: Danny Mine, yeah. So was it 60, 63
4: times. I loved it. I was like, hey, let's keep chucking it. Let's keep throwing it all over the place.
0: Wait, so was Florida State after you played for the Newark Bears? Yeah. Because you said the Newark Bears was 91, right? No, 2001. Okay. Yeah. It was
4: well after. I played five years in NFL, then went played minor league baseball, then went back. I was drafted at a high school in baseball, but I didn't go. Right. I played my first couple years at Florida State. First base? First and third, and I pitched a little bit at Florida State, too. I tried to do it all.
0: Um, All right, this next question comes from Fox. Two questions. First, if the Big Ten East and the SEC West did a showdown, similar to the way they do in basketball, how would it play out? Current matchups based on projected power rankings after week five, uh i don't know if i would line them up these way i did not prep for it (laughs) so alabama versus penn state arkansas versus ohio state much respect to having arkansas as the second best team in the sec west ole miss versus michigan auburn versus michigan state lsu versus maryland mississippi state versus indiana texas a&m versus rutgers yeah that's definitely not looking at uh last week's results thanks for putting on an amazing show week in and week out always entertaining and informative and perfect for listening on long rides to work really enjoyed the coaching staff picks earlier this year, but felt that the position of strength coach should be added. Many coaches have mentioned that the strength coach is one of the most important coaches to hire. I was curious if the four of you could add one more round to the draft with the position of strength coach in mind. Personally, I would take uh, Mickey Marathi at Ohio State, which pains me as a Michigan fan, with Coach Thunder as a close second. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt, unless anybody's got a strong strength coach take, Uh, I'll put that one on the back burner. I am very curious as we've talked about these two divisions uh, time and time again, you know how we think they would stack up and for the not to go like all particular college basketball here, but when they line up, it's not perfect to the standings. It's more of like a, a general, you know, you don't have the best team from last year playing against the worst team, uh, but it's not necessarily a one, one, two, two, three, three. So, uh curious how everyone approached this from the from your own perspective and who you think would end up winning between the SEC West and the Big 10 East
1: the SEC West would win overwhelmingly not overwhelmingly but like if you look at the best teams in the Big 10 East like it's Ohio State versus Alabama either one of those teams could win that game number 2 Penn State and then whoever you think the second best team in the West is okay competitive game then you start to get to Michigan, which is undefeated right now. But how is Michigan done historically in those games
0: against SEC teams? Yeah,
1: not great. But if you get Michigan in the right matchup, whether it's against like an Auburn, which we've already seen lose to Penn State or an Ole Miss, I don't think they get embarrassed. I think they could win. I think so. When you get to those three teams, the Big Ten East has a legitimate shot to win against the top three in the SEC West. It's after you get past those three teams where you kind of lose because no offense to Michigan State six and oh, but your win total is five and a half. Like you started off six and oh, you still have to play Penn State, Michigan and Ohio State. Is Michigan State going to be a 9-10 win team? I don't think so. And I think that if you look at the team that they'd probably be lined up against, whether that's Texas A&M or old miss or arkansas. They could win, but I don't think that's a gimme. And then after you get past Michigan State, you've got Maryland, Indiana and Rutgers. Who in the SEC West are Maryland, Indiana and Rutgers beating?
0: So I had it 5-2 SEC West with the real pivot point being the Maryland, Indiana and Rutgers where the worst teams from the SEC West are probably still going to win those games and there's not much um, you know, not much confusion there. I I gave uh I gave Alabama the nod up at the top, but it was in the middle when I was looking at like if Michigan State lines up against Auburn, I'm going to pick Michigan State. If Michigan State lines up against LSU, I'm going to pick Michigan State. I'm not a believer that Michigan State is going to win those three huge games against division opponents, but I'm also um, a little bit lower on the midsection of that SEC West still They'll clean up at the bottom, and I do think they'll probably take a win or two out of the top four. So that's why I came out to 5 2 SEC West.
1: See, here's the thing that, like, when I power rate the teams in the SEC West, like, Mississippi State and LSU are kind of close for the worst team in the division. Is Rutgers beating either of those teams? No. Is no. Indiana beating either of those teams?
0: That's what I'm saying. It's like Indiana, or- could,
1: Indiana could beat LSU. L- LSU but is yeah. a mess. Yeah. Ooh,
0: yeah. I don't
3: think they would, but like, like, it's not, I wouldn't. You wouldn't make LSU like a 12-point favorite over Indiana, right?
4: Mm-hmm. I would be I would be pushed back a little bit. I'm surprised my man Tom, Mr. Big Ten Tom. Uh, you got to be careful. You got to be careful because what you said about Michigan State, kind of holding that against them, saying, hey, what was their win total, five and a half? What was Arkansas's win total?
1: Wasn't it like six and a half, I think?
4: Was it? I thought it was lower than that. I thought it would have been about the same. So I think we have to be careful in letting our preseason – Uh, perception of teams affect the regular season. Because I think what they've been doing is pretty special. Mm -hmm. And I actually would love to see them. I think in the matchups here, first of all, why can't we get this done? Like, how great would this be if you could actually have the Big Ten SEC showdown in the regular season of college football? It'd be insane. And then, like, some of them, like, if you had Michigan A&M square off against each other, like, is that a slam dunk for the SEC? I would just push back on some of the top ones because I also would – I might give out Ohio State the advantage against Alabama, you know, or say at least it's a closer game than an automatic win. I think some of them are are closer to toss ups than automatic W's. Now the bottom, I agree with you guys. The SEC West would own the bottom, uh, you know, probably the bottom three. But I would say the top four I think are a little bit more up in the air than saying all right, it's five to two, done. SEC West over Big Tennies.
1: Yeah, to go back yeah. to Michigan State, I don't, I don't want to sit here and say that. I think they're a bad team. I think that they're a much better team than we expected, and I think they've played well. It's just, I'm not willing to look past the fact that Michigan State's six wins have been against Northwestern, Youngstown State, a Miami team that has not been anywhere near as good as we thought it would be, Nebraska, Western Kentucky, and Rutgers. I mean, just you just have to look at Maryland, sure. which was 4-0 a couple weeks ago, having beaten West Virginia, Howard, Illinois, and Kent State and then lost by 37 to Iowa, and then lost by nearly 50 to Ohio State. So as soon as it stepped up in class, we kind of saw where Maryland was. And I'm not saying that's going to happen to Michigan State, but like I said, they do have to still play Michigan. They do have to play Ohio State. They have to play Penn State. We're going to know how good Michigan State really is when we get to those games.
3: I I think this is a better question pre-Sean Clifford injury. Um because before the Sean Clifford injury, yes, I, I would give, I would take Alabama over Ohio State, but not by a ton. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they, they wouldn't be laying over a touchdown, I, I don't think. Um, but like, I would take Penn State with Clifford over any team from the Big Ten or from the SEC West, obviously, uh, other than, but I would not take Penn State with Roberson over basically anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like you, t- you take Clifford off that team, even though I don't think he's great. Like, Roberson really struggled in that game. Um, I agree with you guys, it's the bottom. Right, Indiana is not a good team. Michigan State, I think, is an improved team. And even though I'm like Mr. Michigan State, you know, and and I thought they were going to make a bowl, like I certainly don't think that they would make a bowl playing an SEC West schedule most likely. Um, and then Wreckers is smoke and mirrors like crazy. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you guys on that.
0: But that's like my five two. I'm not trying to be dismissive. That's imagining they split the top four. Hmm.
3: You know, like it, it's certainly closer to, I think, like four three three four than it is to seven zero. Yeah, you know what I mean, like five two is decisive, but it's not like I don't want it, the listeners to think we're thinking that like the big Big Ten is going to be double digit dogs in all these games. They're not. It's yeah. just slightly better at certain spots.
1: Ace. It, it's a lot closer this year than it has been in most years in recent memory. And I would say, if instead of doing it by division, if you just took the five best teams from each conference and let them face off in that kind of way, it'd probably be three to two one way or the other.
0: I don't want to steal anyone's thunder for the lock show, but since we mentioned both of these teams, there is a battle between Big Ten East teams in Bloomington on Saturday afternoon. And I don't know if we've seen that line, but I'm curious if anybody is getting tempted to dig back into the love each other well and see if the Hoosiers can somehow rip that bleacher up and go find some magic. Is anybody starting to sniff around uh, an upset alert for, uh, for Sparty here?
1: I mean, they're four and a half to five point favorites on the road at Indiana. This, I, I, I don't know. Everyone's on Sparty. <laughs> Everyone so, is on Sparty for the most part.
3: I am on Sparty at three. Uh, I, I paid minus 112 at it, right? And nothing jumped. I would still bet that at three. My number said about bet that at three, but I don't have them like favored by, by a touchdown. You know what I mean? I think I, my number on them is like five and a half. So three is obviously value, but I will not be playing Michigan State as a four or five point favorite here.
1: I'll wait for the total to get to 49 and then I'll take the under.
0: <laughs> okay. I, I will admit that I was tempted as I was uh, starting to scan the board when you're just trying to look for the spots where uh, there could be some excitement, in a in a slate that's going to be very tough to live up to what we saw from week six. But as we said before, just when you're like, Oh, boring slate, these games stink. Like that's, that's when you catch something you're not expecting. Um, and even though that wouldn't be a massive upset in Vegas, it would still be an undefeated top 10 team going down on the road to a Hoosiers team that many had left for dead would be very interesting. All right, let's do one more before the break. This question comes from SJ Hawks. Love the pod hosts are funny and knowledgeable. Always can't wait for the next episode to come out Question. Who are your front runners for all the position awards at this point, Remington guy et Ketera Who is the best player who doesn't get talked about because his team is bad? For me, Drake London is the Belitnikov, and he's been putting up huge numbers every week, no matter how inconsistent or incompetent USC is. Fight on. Okay, so the I know that keeping track of all of the individual awards is – Difficult even for members of the college football media and especially for college football fans as well. So I've got the the list of the awards here, but I wanted to at least position the conversation so that listeners could follow as a little bit more of the, uh, a little bit more of the position style. So who would be your? And we got midseason All American teams coming up next week at CBS Sports, so relevant here. Who who do you think starts uh, the conversation for the best quarterback in the country at the midseason point?
4: The Davey O'Brien Award, if we're going to do it with the awards. Yeah, the um, Davy O'Brien Award. It's definitely not the people we thought we're going to be, right? It's not really the favorites right now, although C.J. Stroud would make a case for it. Um, I like to I like to acknowledge coaches who do more with less. I also like to acknowledge quarterbacks who have done more with less. Uh, this doesn't describe my guy who I would give to it right now. Uh, and, man, if he would have just done a little bit more against Alabama. But Matt Corral still would be – my guy. Now his stats aren't as gaudy right now as some, but I mean, if like I always think the best question you ask if somebody's like, all right, game on the line, you need a game-winning touchdown, and unfortunately for Matt Corral, he's been in this position quite a bit where he does need a drive, including against Arkansas when somehow they got somebody with wide open with nobody within 20 yards of them. I think Matt Corral might be my guy for the Davy O'Brien early, but I like it for for runners-up watch list. Like guys doing more with less. Kenny Pickett's having an unbelievable year for Pitt and what they're doing in the ACC. He's got 19 touchdowns, one interception and he's you know, he's been there forever, six-year guy, phenomenal. And then if you want the stat pattern, Tanner Mordecai, you know, who's just opened up this offense and they're throwing it all over everybody. I think he was 20, 24 touchdowns now, I think is where he stands or 26, I think I forget what it is. The tops in the country, uh regardless uh, twenty six and seven interceptions. That's pretty spectacular when you think about what he's doing uh, for SMU. Still undefeated too.
1: I yeah, I I kind of I'm happy you mentioned Kenny Pickett because if we think about what we started the show with about how you know there haven't been a lot of great quarterbacks and part of the reason is you know the way defenses are now playing where you're playing a lot of rush three drop eight and it's taking away explosive plays hasn't taken away the explosive plays from Kenny Pickett. Because like it's not like Kenny Pickett's completing seventy two percent of his passes dinking and dunking. He is averaging nearly ten yards per Ten air yards per attempt. He's at nine point seven four on the season. And for listeners who don't know, an air yard is basically any yard past the line of scrimmage. So if he's at the twenty, if the ball, the line of scrimmage is the twenty, and the pass travels to the twenty-seven yard line, it's seven air yards. So he's averaging nearly ten air yards per pass, completing seventy-three percent of them. Only has one interception. Has a touchdown rate of eleven point one percent in a season in which very few quarterbacks have been able to move the ball vertically. Kenny Pickett is killing people vertically. So I would go. With Kenny Pickett right now, and Pitt they can't run the ball, time. Tom. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, they don't even have the. He's the run. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows exactly what Pitt is going to try to do, and he's still getting the production.
3: Mm-hmm. Anybody who bet Pitt alt line uh, week week two against Tennessee, I know I was one of those guys. Uh, I was like, this game is far from over because Pitt cannot salt away a lead. Like they cannot run the ball; they have to keep chucking it. And it's like, oh no, they're going to try to run. This is not good. Like, just please keep <laughs> chucking the ball. With, with Kenny Pickett, um, you know, I, I don't want to steal. I don't want to steal the Brennan Armstrong answer. Um, I'll, I'll actually give, give credit to a couple guys here uh, who I, I really wasn't sold on Casey Thompson. Um, but his number so far this year, I, I, I went on True Media, which is our portal, and, and I sorted uh, EPA per drop back against like power five teams. And then in past very likely situations to try to take out. Some of the RPO stuff. Not that it doesn't count, but like I do care about how you play when the opponent knows you have to pass, as opposed to just you know just off play action. Uh, and he's actually, when I sorted for uh, for quarterbacks with over 100 dropbacks, he's actually number two in the country mm-hmm. in yard in, in EPA per dropback uh, in pass rush, uh, very likely situations. So, thought that was interesting. And number one by far is CJ Stroud, mm-hmm. who I know we gave some crap after after the uh, the Oregon game. We know he was dealing with an injury, but 66% through the air, 18 to three touchdown to pick, uh, adjusted net yards per attempt, 11, 7, air yards per pass, 10 8. I mean, like he's chucking it. Granted, he's got studs all over the field. Like he he might be the fourth or fifth best player on that offense, but um, he's producing pretty well.
0: No one mentioned Bryce Young.
3: He's on my list. I just didn't want to go like for an hour. Yeah, he's on the list. He's he's playing really well.
4: Yeah, it is like the watch list. You know, (laughs) that's kind of what we're doing here. Yeah. They whittle down.
0: We'll we'll whittle it down, of course, uh, throughout the year. All right, let's take it to the Doak Walker Award, which is for running backs. I think there's two, and we can have the debate about two, but if you've got a third name, I'd be fascinated to hear the argument for why that third name belongs on the same tier as my top two.
1: Well, who's your top two?
0: B. John Robinson and Kenneth Walker, the third.
1: Go with me. What about Trevion Henderson? Yeah.
0: If we're doing it right now, I would still lean with those two.
1: Why, why can't he count right now, though?
0: He can count.
1: but it's, He's got nine touchdowns, Chip. <sighs> he's only carried the ball 70 times, and he's got nine touchdowns. He's averaging, he's averaging 8.7 yards per carry.
0: This is an awesome year at the running back. Yeah,
1: no, it's it's like whoever wins the Doak Walker award, unless a lot of things change and somebody just absolutely blows up over the final half of the season, there's really not going to be a wrong vote. There's need, a lot of guys who can who deserve a vote.
0: Whoever wins it should get two awards. I say that about the Masters sometimes. I stole it from Kyle Porter, but he's like, they should give two jackets this year. Like some years winning the Masters, somebody just backs into it because of what happens elsewhere. But when you go out and beat everybody else, it's like, geez. It's like a jacket and a half. This is a two-jacket year. I feel like if you win the Doak Walker Award, uh, then you are you might need two tro- two trophies there. They okay, I'll listen. The, the, trivia the
4: Heisman here. might be the second one they get <laughs> this year. In fact, That's true. I know Christopher Rodriguez Love leads the SEC in rushing, most physical conference out there. But mm-hmm. I would not put him in there yet. If he does it against Georgia, all of a sudden we would be talking about him next week, uh, possibly doing uh, being in this category of names. But I'm with you guys. I think it's two. Uh, I think it's two, but I, I hear what Tom's saying too. But I think over time with Travion Henderson gets more carries because he started a little bit slow when they weren't featuring him as much. Now that he's starting to become the feature back, he's gonna catch up statistically as well.
1: Zach Evans, too. He wasn't getting a ton of carries early. He's still really not, but he's a guy that I mean, he's looking at his numbers right now, he's averaging seven point nine two yards per carry, only seventy four carries, though. All
0: right. The uh the Balitnikov award, the for best wide receiver. Uh, The listener in the question suggested Drake London. I'm having trouble finding uh, wide receivers that I feel overwhelmingly confident in based on the performance. And that's different than based on your skill set, based on your NFL projections, based on how impressed I am with you on you know like a play or what i think you could do in my little video game brain but at the same time if you're just going to go for the like what you have accomplished in terms of production and in terms of what you mean to an offense and a team on the field london's a really good argument
1: yeah no london's got a really good argument uh jordan addison the guy Kenny (laughs) picks going to most of the time has a pretty good argument i think i mean there's like the this is a weird situation because the guys typically at the top of this list that you would consider aren't like the NFL draft guys like if you look at like an NFL draft prospect sheet and a blittnikoff sheet there's really not too much crossover this year I I think there's like
3: there's I don't know five or six guys really stand out London is certainly on that list um Jamison Williams actually has been really good for Alabama and has been tough too, know, like I, I know he kind of had a rep of being a little bit soft, but uh, that's not true at Alabama. Like he's he's playing hard, he's playing physical. Um, you know, Kayshawn obviously got hurt in the last game for LSU, but but he's been a total stud, and everybody knows the ball's going to him for Max Johnson, and, and he's still you know making a ton of plays. Drake London is is killing it. Uh, Marvin Mims, who torched Jeez. Texas, has really been killing it this year. Uh, and like that was a, an Oklahoma receiving core that I thought would be better this year. Uh, and yet, he's still kind of standing out above the fray. Ohio State's got like a million dudes who have been really good, but Jackson Smith and Jigba has been really, you <laughs> know, really nice for them. And then, how about Dontavian Wicks? Yep, actually, uh, leads the country in uh, offensive target EPA. So, like on plays where they have targeted him, leads the nation uh, in in uh, in offensive target EPA against FBS teams. So, like he killed Miami. He did a really nice job, I believe, against uh, Virginia and has mm-hmm. been great all year. So, heavy defense offense is fun, man. They don't give it a damn. They, yeah. They're just chucking it deep.
1: He's averaging 22 yards a catch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like he's like, he's like you said, he's like the literal big play receiver in that it's big plays as far as yardage. And they're also big plays at the most clutch times. <laughs> it's amazing two guys we didn't mention I would give some love to Josh Downs at
4: UNC and UNC. the season expectations I think have hurt Sam Howell and Josh Downs as far as perception of the program and then a player who's on a team that's not very good right now but I think he means a lot to that team is David Bell at Purdue he's played with two quarterbacks and they've both they've been swapping out and neither one are great so I think it's impacted his performance too and yet he's still been a pretty dominant force for the Boilermakers too
1: yeah that's what I was meaning earlier it's like David Bell you look at NFL okay Look at his numbers this year. As far as like winning a Belitnikov, nah, no, probably not.
4: Um,
0: what about the? Before we get to John Mackey, let's take it to the big uglies up front. What about Remington Trophy is for center, and then remember the uh, the Outland Trophy does that like it's interior lineman, so it could be a defensive tackle, but it also could be an offensive lineman. Um, I I think that for the purposes of our conversation here in a mailbag episode heading into Week Seven, let's. I, I, I just want to hear who's been standing out as the, the strong offensive lineman so far in college football?
4: I think this is going to be the easiest one of all of them. Linderbaum?: Yeah. Yeah, Can you talk to anybody who studies, you know, some of these guys that are offensive line, like Cole Kubelik with SEC Network. Uh, just the minute these guys start to watch some tape prepping for a game, everyone's raving about Linderbaum is probably going to be a top 10, top 15 pick in the NFL draft, dominating up front. I think it's like the easiest one of all these, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. like, I don't that, know if there's that much to debate.
1: No, as far as center goes, I, I, th- there's a lot of good centers in the in the country this year, but he is just kind of a level above everybody else right now.
0: Um, at the tackle position, I Evan Neal is gonna because he's just such a freak, and because he's put together some awesome tape this year, I think he's gonna get a lot of attention. But mentioned him going into the season, Ikiokuonu at NC State. It's been really, really solid. I mean, the big thing that NC State does well right now is run that daggum football, and they've done a good job with Grant Gibson and Iquonu leaving, leading the way with that. So I would mention their names uh, at the tackle position as well.
1: You know, this this might get me some heat, but like Evan Neal is more of a name to me than a production at this point. I feel like Evan Neal this season, there's been a lot of hype on his talent and going in like he was on the All-American team. So as I've talked about, like in the Florida game and that Texas A&M game, that entire Alabama offensive line got its butt kicked. And I don't think Evan Neal played particularly great in either game. I don't think he was awful, but if we're talking about like best tackles in the country, I don't know if I would have him there right now.
3: I I don't know. Tom, I, I might push back on it a, a little bit. Um, I, I thought the Florida game, he did have some struggles, but I, I thought against A&M that was more on coaching overall. Like a found a way to really confuse their blocking schemes. I don't know, you know, maybe that's Bryce Young being a young quarterback as well. Like to me, it was more on the other side of the line that they were really, really struggling with, with some of those overload looks. I I don't know. I'm, I'm still pretty high on Evan Neal.
1: I just... Well, I'm like, high on his potential. I just don't think he's playing as well as everybody just kind of assumes he is. That's fair.
3: Uh, defensive
0: line. Anyone got a challenger to Jordan Davis? I no. was gonna say Linderbaum is his own team.
3: Devontae Wyatt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, Devontae Wyatt sure. has been really good on his own team.
1: Yeah. Um it's can we just nominate Georgia for every defensive award and just be like <laughs> Oh, whoa, Georgia whoa. defense? Oh, uh, you
4: could say the same thing about
1: Iowa potentially.
0: For Iowa defense.
4: secondary. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant my bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. defensive line, Georgia. Yes. Secondary, I would say uh, Iowa, you might have to give some love to in the same same way.
0: Um for uh, oh sorry the the Mackey Award for tight end, Widermeyer, Isaiah Likely from Coastal. I mean about Mike
4: Meyer for what he's done for Notre Dame. Michael how about Greg Mason, Dolchich at UCLA. Like oh, yeah.
1: yeah yeah. How many forget?
4: how many UCLA
3: receivers can we even name? Right, like <laughs> Dolchich is the guy they throw the ball to.
1: No, no, that's you, a good you'd be my pick, I think. That's like a memory hole for me too because it's honestly. <laughs> This is just stupid football brain. But I think of UCLA's uniforms. I don't think that team's capable of having a good tight end. <laughs> but they really do. So it just kind of escapes my brain. It's like, oh, yeah.
3: Jelani Woods also, from a pass catching standpoint, has been really good. I don't know how he is as a blocker, but like, like again, this is UBA's offense. So they just chuck it every play.
0: But um, okay. What good. about at the linebacker position, which is the butt kiss award?
3: Well, I mean, it's N'Kobe Dean.
0: You think it's like undoubtedly? Yes. Okay. The hipster pick is Devin Lloyd from okay. Utah,
3: who's perfectly been, good pick. I love him too. Very, very
0: good. But Nakobe Dean's probably the pick there. Uh, all right. What about the defensive backs?
1: The Thorpe Award. Uh, I the entire Iowa secondary. <laughs> um. Uh, I mean, Jermaine Waller's having a good season for Virginia Tech as far as picking off passes. Uh, I would go with Riley Moss, though. I mean, he's banged up, so I don't know how that's going to affect the rest of his season. But just as far as making plays, he's been there. Hankins at Iowa is not just – I think Riley Moss has more interceptions, but I think Mike Hankins might be the better player or at least having a better season. Because I feel like Mike Hankins has not only broken up and picked off passes, but I feel like in the run game he's been awesome in support, and he's been just a really solid tackler. So i I think Moss will probably get more votes, but I think Hankins might deserve them more. I'm gonna go Jermaine
3: Waller as, uh, from Vautec. Uh Just like teams don't throw at him that much, but adjusted yards per attempt 1.9. Mm-hmm. So basically, every time they throw at Jermaine Waller. It done in well, very well for them.
1: The only um, time it's caught is when Jermaine Waller's catching it.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, like he just—he's been a been an absolute stud for that defense all
4: year. Go Shab- bad hankins just for the fact that our boy Gus kept calling him Matt Hawkins <laughs> during the game like twice. So let's—we're gonna give him some love on here just for that simple fact alone. So we get his name right.
0: um I think that defensive backs are loaded. Kyle Hamilton at Notre Dame, Sauce Gardner at Cincinnati, Jaquan Brisker at Penn State, uh, just dudes everywhere. Hankins and Moss uh, from Iowa both made, my, uh, both made my short list as well. Uh, what about Give the Kicker some love? The Lou Groves Award. Man.
1: Do we have or- to? I'm a voter. I don't know if I'm allowed to tip my hand.
0: Give me Gabe Burkick or Nick Skiba.
1: What about? I mean, West Virginia's kicker is literally named Casey Leg. <laughs> just got to. And he hasn't missed one this year. I mean, come on. His name is Leg the Leg. That's his I, nickname.
0: What What about uh, Ray Guy for punter?
1: <laughs> oh, that's 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 Blake Hayes, Illinois. Listen, <laughs> every single freaking punter in the Big Ten deserves <laughs> the Ray Guy award. It's, they've just been bombing them all season long. It's it's the Big Ten strong suit. It is a stereotype, but this year. It's real.
0: We had the which game on Saturday had the 85 yard punt? That was Texas, Oklahoma.
1: Oh, that's is
0: this, is Burkick the punter too?
1: No, no. Oh, I, I'm, it's taking a while to load because my computer's really crappy. But I was going to look up inside the 10% or rate this year because I know that like I know Blake Hayes has done phenomenal. I know that Tory Taylor, we saw him. Tory Taylor might have won that damn game against Penn State on his own Saturday.
3: I think actually you might give the award to both specialists for Iowa. Um, Shudak is leading the nation in field goals of, of more than 40 yards um, with with four, and has hit four of his five from that distance. Iowa doesn't really score any points with its offense, so like he's extremely important. Every kick is a pressure kick because they don't blow anybody out, um, and he's been he's been really good there. I, I do want to give him, and then Seth Small from Texas A&M as well has done well. I had to Google that while you guys were talking. I really like, I don't pay attention to kickers at all. Not, not, not
0: what? What? By the know. way, for Oklahoma, Burkick does not do the punting duties that is handled by Michael Turk. Turk is there a kick? Like, there
1: Should are, we, there are like those Twitter accounts of the guys out there they are like line niche guys that are always tweeting about line play. Do we have like a kicker version of that? Like, is there somebody on Twitter? <laughs> Who's there's crushing, a couple crushing kicker film. <laughs>
4: there are a couple. Now, I don't know if they're crushing film from an analyst perspective, but like, there's a guy, Brandon Cornblue who I think kicked mm-hmm. at Michigan, and he's like a, a kicking guru. Like, you got some gurus who are trying to develop little businesses because they'll coach up a lot of kickers, but I haven't seen ones like from an analyst perspective other than Jay Feely, who does a great job with us at CBS as a uh, NFL broadcaster. But... I don't know, from like a a film guru. All right. Here,
1: it finally loaded. Of punters who have punted at least 10 times, highest inside the 10% rate. Illinois' Blake Hayes is first at 34.4%. Second is Minnesota's Mark Crawford at 30.4%. Third is Rutgers' Adam Corsack at (laughs) 29.6%. And then you've got Arizona State punter Eddie Zaplicki. Texas's Cameron Dicker, and then you're back in the Big Ten for Michigan's Brad Robbins, and then you go down a few more. And there's Maryland's Anthony Pecarola, There's Iowa's. So in the top fifteen guys, as far as inside the ten, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven Big Ten punters.
3: <laughs> I do want to note that, like, to give Georgia's defense a little bit more love, uh, and producer Jordan just mentioned this, but Jalen Carter, kid out of Apopka, Florida, uh, who was, I believe, a freshman last year is really coming on for their defensive line and is probably a first round pick as well. And last couple of games just dominated. So I, I do want to give him some credit too. like they that's what the problem is. Like, who do you double
1: on that? You defense? Well, you just cross your right. fingers and hope for the best. Like you hope you call the right play in the right direction and can get past them in time. That's really all you can yeah. do. Step I think one. the answer is Davis because like you want to start inside out. You know what I mean? If, like, the, mm-hmm. if your center is literally
3: getting pushed over, that's a problem on every play. <laughs> yes. But like that means you got, you got Wyatt and, uh, and Carter soloed along with Nolan Smith. So that's, you know, um, a lot. Also, like Carter's also a really good pass rusher from the interior, which, which gives them some, some real stuff. Can we give an award to uh, um, the coach who, or coaches who have made the uh, highest percentage of correct fourth down decisions? No. Sure. The Bud Elliott Award. Yeah. Uh, and these four teams are all exceeding their preseason win projections, I believe. So according to Jared Lee of Twitter, guy that runs the, uh, the model, Tennessee, Ole Miss, Boston College and Baylor. Mm. Are the, look at Baylor. Look at that turnaround. We, we gave we gave Dave Dave a ton smart. last year. Yeah, but he was terrible last year. Yeah. This year, those are the four coaches who are 100 percent playing it, and all four are exceeding their win probabilities. Now, the three at the bottom are also exceeding their win probabilities. NC State, Dave Doran, uh, not really not really killing it so far this year. That's
4: the least surprising like correlation.
3: Forens, <laughs> oh, who's clearly factoring in his offense. Least surprising. Which I think yeah. you should do. Uh, um, now, the team that has messed it up the most, not the highest percentage, but the number of opportunities that they have made the incorrect decision, is going to make Tom sad. I know who it because, is. Yeah. Illinois had 18, uh, 18 <laughs> times and they've only made the by the book decision three times, but but Blake's
1: pinning him in the 10
3: when he, he made is, him do he's it. He's putting like crazy. Yeah.
4: let I kind of have a kind of quick question? Yeah. Yeah. By the book, is there one book, one algorithm or are there are multiple philosophies on this? Cause I've seen, I actually follow the guy you were talking about on Twitter. Cause I think it's interesting, but is, are there multiple philosophies or was it pretty standard? I think there are multiple philosophies on
3: it, right? Um, I know that these schools get custom reports yep. with, like, tailored. input. And they, uh, yeah, exactly right. Um, and obviously, these are not going to be perfectly tailored. But I will say, like, Jared's model does incorporate the spread and total of the game. So it factors in, like, are you a big underdog? Mm. What kind of game is this, right? Like, is it a high-scoring game, a low-scoring game? Because that kind of stuff changes the, the, the actual value of the go-for-it or not. Um, it's not just, like, a blind... Hey, regardless of the quality of the team's model. Let's but get, I just thought it was interesting. All all four coaches that are 100 percent are uh are certainly on, on their way to hitting hitting their over with a win total. BC let's you even a with, Bobby uh, Dodd with a coach injury.
0: of the year. Yeah, you need a Bobby Dodd coach of the year vote, or maybe like a whole block oh. of them. So you can just fourth down the entire award. Everyone's out here giving the award to the more with less. You know, Mike McIntyre gets Colorado the Pac 12 championship game. Here you go. Uh, you know, let's let's let Bud be like, ah. Alas, but Mike McIntyre did not make the right decision <laughs> 62% of the time. Not a coach of the year.
3: Like, there's so much more to coaching. You know what I mean? Like, managing personalities, teaching, hiring people, knowing how to run a program. Uh, but this is something we can all see on game days. You know what I mean? It's hard for me to evaluate like, how good of a person are you inside your program without talking to people. But, like, this is something we can actually look at every Saturday. And it, you know, it does impact the game. Maybe not each individual game, but it certainly impacts it over the course of the season. Um, and I think right now, like certain coaches are finding an edge you know, by by doing it.
0: Coming up on the other side, are uh Oregon fans crazy for being a little frustrated with Mario Cristobal? And what would happen if James Franklin left Penn State? And where would he
2: potentially go? We'll get into that next. Robert Half research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. <laughs> all right. This question is from Brett Oregon fan here. There are some small rumblings
0: with Cristobal and his coaching decisions and whether he is the guy. Obviously we love his recruiting, but fans want the ducks to capitalize on the talent we have. I'm on Cristobal's side. Basically I've got the Bo Pelini situation running through my mind. Be grateful for what you have. I'll take top seven recruiting classes all day and try to figure out the coaching issues later. Oregon fans are crazy for wanting to kick the tires on other coaches, Right.
1: I, I understand the frustration with Cristobal's decision-making sometimes during the game because we've been talking about it on this podcast for years. But I would rather have him there acquiring the talent and then hoping that you figure things out on game day a little better as you get more experience in the position. But I would, I would rather have all that talent and a questionable decision every once in a while than a guy who's always right in a bad football team.
4: I think you're crazy to go like if there are Oregon fans thinking, Hey, we could do better. Good luck trying to find it. Like it wasn't that long ago. Everyone was panicked. Like, Hey, we can't let them go to USC. Like it shows you the the fickle nature of college football. But I do think what is fascinating and probably contributing to some of this frustration is what Justin Herbert's doing in the NFL. Like the fact that he, and, and we were all like, where did this come from? Why didn't we see this at Oregon? I think it's a valid question. Because I do think I, I, the offense...
1: He's got some Kirby to him.
4: Yes, I would say that. And it, was not, it shouldn't be surprising. Offensive yeah. line guy, like, you know, wants to run the football, wants to be physical. But I also just think from a schematic scam, uh, standpoint of really simplifying things, I think there's also a little bit of Clemson in there, too, of a little bit more basic... You know, I don't know if they – like, you want to maximize your potential. And I think Justin Herbert's probably the greatest example of not maximizing that potential. But I I would say I wonder how much that's contributing to some of the consternation of Oregon fans. But, I mean, to say – I'm saying self-time to self-reflect. Let's do some self-scouting. Let's see how we can get up to times to take advantage in this big chess match that we talked about on here. Let's see how we can make better moves, not do we get a new player at the game. Like, that That to me is ridiculous. For Oregon to even consider that yeah I, I totally agree look you, you, you guys can have kind of micro
3: frustrations with your coach but still need to see the big picture that he's done an excellent job there at Oregon um, he has taken advantage of USC kind of spinning its wheels with, with the continued hire of Clay Helton and has really cemented them as a brand that can go head-to-head with folks for the top recruits west of the Rockies and occasionally recruit nationally as well I certainly under, understand the frustration that you didn't have the OC right, I think, mm-hmm. when you had Herbert there. And now you've got a guy who I think we all respect quite a bit as an OC. I mean, he was in the hospital, so he missed the Stanford game. than that, the has looked pretty good, despite like, who's your favorite receiver on Oregon? You know what I mean? They don't really have dudes that, that scare you right now. I don't really believe in Anthony Brown all that much. And for the most part, you know, Joe was making it work there. I thought that was a, an inspired hire um, you know, I think Mario is a tough guy to work for. I think he demands a lot of his coaches based on what I've heard. And so I'll be interested to see kind of the, the long-term there with his assistance. Um, but, like, guys, I mean, the chance you upgrade versus the chance you downgrade, if you were to get, yeah. which they're not going to do, obviously, like because the administration is not full of idiots. Um, do you think any of this is sort of like pre-sour grapes with Mario's name being mentioned for LSU and USC a whole lot? Like they're kind of
1: like getting ahead of the narrative. And I think it's mostly fans head. are, I think mostly fans are just pissed they lost to Stanford. Sure. And I also think like the one thing that any Oregon fan that is frustrated with Mario, I'd, I'd ask you to consider is a think about all the injuries that that team is dealing with right now. Mm. And the fact that he's been able to recruit so well is why you've been able to withstand those injuries to still be in a position to win the North and win the Pac 12. Cause a few years ago, you have that many guys hurt your season was done. You guys were finishing seven and five. And also for some of those decisions at the end of that Stanford game, bud, as you just mentioned, he didn't have his offensive coordinator with him. If Joe Boarhead's there, maybe some of those decisions would have been different. Question
4: for Tom, a resident big 10 guy. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's one loss, Pac-12 champ, Oregon, one loss, pac uh, big 10 champ, Ohio state. And I know this is always like, or, is this the scenario? Like we have to go Oregon right there. Or what are we doing? but there's a part of me that knows how this works the brands and the perception of the Pac-12 versus the Big 10 that that kind of scares me for college football that if those are the two teams that are there picked you know against each other for that fourth spot i i Also, seating is going to matter a lot, as we've talked a lot about. Like that's the part that maybe if it gets there. Now, I don't. I'm losing a little faith in Oregon getting there. But are you? Do you think it's a lock that it's Oregon because they won in Columbus? Are you? Are you worried at all about? Oh, where? And especially rankings where they are now. Like it's getting worse. Like Oregon dropped a spot, didn't even play last weekend, and they're moving further from a team that they beat.
1: I I think that if Oregon wins the Pac-12 and has one loss, and Ohio State wins the Big Ten and has one loss. I think Oregon would be the more deserving team because of that win. I think they'd give it to Ohio State because at that point, Ohio State will have – that loss will have been four months earlier and Ohio State will have just knocked off like a Michigan team that's probably in the top 10, a Penn State team that's probably in the top 10, and then an Iowa team that's probably in the top 10. And they're going to say, well, those three wins kind of canceled that Oregon loss, whereas after Oregon beat Ohio State, they haven't really beaten anybody of note. Can can I just – I want to
3: interject here. Under what scenario are either of these teams being left out?
4: They I don't shouldn't
3: think, be. No, if they're I, both one loss. Like I mean, we have to I mean, a lot
4: if, of assumptions. Georgia yeah. runs the table. Alabama's a second loss. Oklahoma oh, runs oh, the no, table. I, here's
1: here's the scenario where I think it would be possible. Oklahoma is an undefeated Big Twelve champion. Mm-hmm. Alabama beats an undefeated Georgia on a mm-hmm. last second field goal in the SEC championship. So you've got undefeated Oklahoma, yeah. one loss Georgia, one loss Alabama, and then Ohio State and Oregon both all with one loss again this is a this is very much threading an unlikely needle but i think that is a scenario where that's off you're call. gonna put in a non-champion over space a spaceship. one loss <laughs> like to yeah, Texas. There's no, if it's alabama and georgia don't yeah. put it past them i mean oh it's, yeah i'm like, with tom on that one we've, we've seen, seen this story conference before champions left out before yeah
4: but i do think the seating Have is we gonna matter over
1: a one loss non-champ no but i i'm telling you if 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 there's a scenario in which that final spot is between a one-loss Ohio State and a one-loss Oregon, whatever scenario it is, say they say, you know what, damn it, we feel so bad for leaving out UCF all those years we're going to put Cincinnati in, (laughs) and then it's between Ohio State and Oregon, they'd pick Ohio State over Oregon.
3: I will say, I just summed up all my numbers here, or producted them, and I give Oregon a 2.1% chance of finishing with one loss through the Pac-12 cha- championship game. So probably not going to happen, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, that I, would be fascinating. Yeah,
0: you're in the real world, but we're over here trying to melt brains right here. Right. We're trying to say that Cincinnati don't is undefeated. Georgia yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they have to, especially if you're number one all season.
3: Does it depend on how well the rest of Georgia's opponents look throughout the rest of the year? Like, do they need Florida to remain strong? Do they need Clemson not to pick up another loss? sec doesn't need anything they don't no, need help they, they
1: don't care sec non-champ
4: over a one-loss big 12 or other power five champ the way we talk about georgia all season long matters like oh this is the best defense we've ever seen how great they are how dominant they are it doesn't matter we've seen this story before in the sec like it's- we
0: talked about giving individual awards to the whole damn georgia defense
4: yep yeah which I longer, agree with you. I think it they should. Face, they didn't do anything against. I think it should matter because I think their schedule very much is in question of when it's all said and done, find the impressive wins. But then when you hear them talk, where they're going to say, well, we had a road top 15 win against Auburn and we had a top three win against Clemson. And that, like that's going to be the narrative as opposed to, well, when you really look deeper, is it was it that impressive as some other teams that we're going to compare resumes to? So I think they need the East to be better and have some of these teams like Florida to continue to, to if they beat them to, to go ahead and like beat Florida state handsomely to beat some of their other opponents on their schedule, because we've looked at we, Florida. I keep looking at and saying, I don't know who this team is because all I see is good losses, but that's the only conference. You really get a lot of credit for good losses. Other ones, they're just losses.
0: Uh if Tennessee keeps winning, November thirteenth in Knoxville could end up being a quality win for Georgia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tennessee.
4: By the a way, not right now. Did you see the total of the uh, Ole Miss Tennessee game? 82. 82? 82? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get ready. It's steamed up. Yeah, I took Let's the go. under. I should have waited. It's going to be a principal play. Just get yeah. ready for it.
0: Let's go. <laughs> this morning, yeah. Get the children ready. All right, we'll. Uh, we're we're going to save the the. The big, we already did enough galaxy brain work on this podcast. We don't need to start putting together multiple hypotheticals and checking the dominoes so that we will tackle the future of Penn State, USC, Luke Fickle, uh, James Franklin, LSU. We'll tackle all that uh, in next week's mailbag episode. I, I will keep it here at the top of the big old bag of mail you can follow him on twitter at bud elliott three you can follow him at danny cannell you can follow him at tom for you can follow me at chip underscore patterson thursday 11 a.m youtube.com slash cover three if you want to join it live subscribers you'll get the show probably like 12 30 12 40 one o'clock somewhere around there normal time uh, so that you can come and get these locks gentlemen thank you very much
1: thank you see y'all